You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Daniel Galancy. Daniel is the CEO of Atacama, which is a trending cybersecurity company that has begun making waves in the space with its industry-disrupting encryption technology. Daniel has a ton of wide-ranging experience from the hedge fund world to starting a company in the Bitcoin space in 2014 and transitioning to start Atacama in 2018. I brought Daniel on the show to do a deep dive on private capital formation and its history dating all the way back to the 1930s. In this episode, we cover how the venture capital space grew from nothing to a $750 billion industry, the difference between primary and secondary markets, how private capital markets have evolved over time with new regulations, how equity crowdfunding differs from traditional crowdfunding, what sort of role equity crowdfunding opportunities can play in a portfolio, how investors can take advantage of Atacama's equity crowdfunding round, and so much more. In terms of equity crowdfunding in particular, I personally see a lot of value in adding equity crowdfunding as a portfolio diversifier that offers the potential for asymmetric upside. For full disclosure, I personally invested in Atacama's equity crowdfunding round myself that we're going to discuss at the end of this episode. The cybersecurity space in particular is a massive and growing industry, and Atacama has had exponential growth with customer contract values increasing from under $400,000 in Q3 of 2021 to over $2 million in customer contract value at the end of 2022. It was such a pleasure having Daniel on the show as he provides a wealth of knowledge and insights on private capital markets. With that, I hope you enjoy today's episode with Daniel Galancy. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. Today, I am very excited as I'm joined by my friend, Daniel Galancy to cover private capital markets. Daniel, such a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks for inviting me. As I mentioned at the top of the show, we're going to be chatting about the evolution of capital formation and how this gives individual investors the access to access new opportunities that traditionally haven't been available. To get this conversation kicked off, I think it would be super helpful, Daniel, to touch on your background and why this topic of private capital markets is so fascinating to you and essential to you as an entrepreneur and a business owner. Sure, absolutely. So my background is sort of half tech, half finance. So I studied physics and electrical engineering, and then I was a trader for a little while, and then I was a hedge fund analyst for quite a while in the fundamental long short equity hedge fund industry, I'm mostly covering tech. And then I discovered the Bitcoin world, got excited about that. And then ultimately that got me interested in cryptography in general, right? Not the cryptography, the, the discipline and started my own cybersecurity company. Along the way, I dealt a lot with, you know, of course the public capital markets when I was a trader and when I was in the hedge fund world. And then subsequently, as I started my own company, and also as I looked into other areas in the Bitcoin world, the private capital markets, you know, markets for uh, startups and how private capital operates. And then of course, there were a lot of situations in the hedge fund world where entities would have an IPO and they'd be coming out of some situation 
where they were, you know, potentially held by private equity or owned by venture capitalists, among other people or among other groups prior to their IPO, right? So there are a lot of these nexuses. There, there have always been nexuses to the private capital markets. You've kind of whatever I've done. And it got me just increasingly interested in how they operate. So we're going to be talking a lot about capital formation and some of these terms that are related to this. And I think a really good place to start here is venture capital, which is a term a lot of people are really familiar with. How about we just start with you know what venture capital is and how it came to be and how it fits into this capital formation picture? Maybe I should start by talking about capital formation and and like and perhaps defining the term a little bit because I sometimes find that when I'm when I'm discussing this, people say, "What in the world is capital formation?" And it's a good place to start foundationally before we talk about the venture world. So, capital formation is the process through which investors come together and provide capital to a new entity. So, you know, if you want to start a brand new company, right? If your uncle wants to start a new car wash and your uncle says, Hey, you know, I want to do this thing. And maybe your uncle doesn't quite have the right amount of capital for it. Your uncle would inherently be involved in the process of capital formation. He may not go with that as most people do not, but he would initially go to friends and family and say, Hey, I'm trying to put together this car wash. I'd like you to put in some money. And that could be in the form of equity. It could be in the form of debt. It could be a hybrid instrument. There are all sorts of formats in which that could happen, right? But the process of that new capital air quotes forming, and then the new venture getting off the ground, be it a VC-like venture, I use air quotes there, where you know it can scale tremendously, or a small business, like a laundromat, right? All that stuff is capital formation. So with that as a, as a prerequisite, your question was really about the venture world. So venture capital is a very specific corner of the capital formation world. And VCs really look for businesses that will scale hugely. So there's nothing wrong with car washes. And by the way, they can be great businesses. They can generate a lot of cash. And there are private equity companies that are rolling up car washes and taking them public, right? So that's happening too. Um, but venture capitals are not really looking for car washes because it's very difficult to scale. So, you know, VCs tend to be interested, I would say, you know, stereotypically, and I'll use that word, in businesses like software companies, right? Or a biotech company. Something where you can put in, you know, a modest amount of capital upfront and then get these really tremendous returns on capital because what you're getting returns on tend to be for example, network effects or intellectual property, right? Or something where, and I know you cover this a lot in your podcast, something where there's an important moat, right? Sort of from the foundation, from ground zero. And that's where the venture industry really cares, those sorts of businesses. In terms of its history, it's surprisingly new. So we can talk about the regulatory background, which is actually, it's not boring. It's actually really interesting and very important. But just in terms of you know, timing, it didn't it really exist, you know, pre-World War II at all, right? It really emerged. There's a tiny, tiny little bit in the 60s, a little bit more in the 70s, and then really in the 80s, right? So in, you know, in the 60s, it was you know, so small, it doesn't really matter. In the 70s, that's when you had uh, uh, groups like Sequoia and Kleiner Perkins start. And at the time, you know, it was maybe a $100 million industry, so pretty small. By the 80s, it was like a 
single digit billion. I think the number I last saw was 3 billion in, in 1980. By 2000, it was more than 100 billion. Okay, so skip 20 years. Skip another 20 years to 2020 slash 2021. And now we're talking about 750 billion. So much larger. Now, that seems very large, but just by way of comparison, if you look at the, you know, the market caps of you know, all US equities, right? Subtract out ETFs and mutual funds because you don't want to double count, right? That's you know, more than 40, somewhere between 40 and 45 trillion, right? So you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19x, high teens x, the size of the venture world, right? So even though the venture world is big, it's still small on a relative basis. Traditionally, what have the returns of the venture space looked like relative to the public markets? Is that something you're familiar with? So it's difficult to get precise data on this, but I have seen some data sets on this. So first thing is that the data is skewed. The, and, I, and I'll explain why that is. So when I say skewed, what do I mean? Certain venture capital groups will have tremendous, tremendous outperformance. And they'll be able to maintain that for quite some time. Whereas others will lag. So you have this, this kind of odd distribution. Now, by the way, then you, could, you could say that that's the case for equity fund managers, publicly traded equity fund managers. But I think that the skew here is going to be stronger. When I say here, I mean the venture world. Why? The reason tends to be access to deal flow. So the fancier the better the prospects of the company, the more likely they are to be attracted by the likes of the top tier venture groups. Consequently, those venture groups, and it's very clubby, those venture groups get access to these great deals and smaller venture groups tend to be a little bit more left out in the cold. Now that may be changing a little bit, but if you look at historically, you know, certainly over the past 30, 40 years, it's largely been the case. Now, if you aggregate it all together, the last data set that I saw indicated that there's actually a slight discount. So if you look at the returns on venture capital, if you look across the board, so take the high performing ones and the less spectacularly performing ones, and the, the aggregate performance is you know, a couple of points below the S&P or the Russell over the same period. But I don't think that's quite the way to look at it because you really want to be cognizant of the manager here and the big, a big difference between managers in the, speaking of competitive advantage, managers in the publicly traded equity markets, you'll see these managers who will perform spectacularly and then it will go away, right? Not always, but, but often. In the venture world, success can create more success because they get bigger and they have access to better deals and they get more connected, right? They get more entrenched in the top tier club and they get better access to better deals. So they can create for themselves over time an increasingly powerful advantage. That has been the case historically. Whether that remains the case going forward, impossible to say, but I suspect that will continue to be the case. It reminds me of a company like Airbnb when Sequoia decided they're going to invest in Airbnb. That changed everything for them. And you know they got involved with Y Combinator and Y Combinator kind of got them access to this exclusive club that you're talking about. 
How about we talk a little bit about primary versus secondary markets and some of the rules around capital formation and general solicitations that go around this? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, before we do, I want to add to what you said about Airbnb. Airbnb is certainly not the only example of that. There are a handful of companies that I actually won't name names here, but one, one company in particular that's in the digital asset space, let's say, its competitors had suffered a lot of difficulty at the hands of incumbent banks. They didn't, banks didn't want to have relationships with, the, you know, with, with a lot of these competitors. So one company got together with the right VCs. The VCs called a particular bank and said, don't shut this company's accounts down. So these VCs can almost, in a sense, drive their own returns. It's really fascinating. But okay, to answer your question, your question was about primary markets, secondary markets, general solicitation. Let, let's do the general solicitation part first. Your uncle with the, your, your fictitious uncle with the fictitious car wash. If your fictitious uncle with the fictitious car wash, you know, if he wanted to raise money for this car wash and he were to stand on the street corner and say, I'm raising money at a sandwich board. I'm raising money for this car wash. Give me money and I will sell you shares in the car wash. Or I will, will be a debt security, whatever it is. That would be considered what's known as a general solicitation. He's asking the world for capital. General solicitations in the United States and in most other developed market countries are prohibited under securities regulations. I'm going to stick with mostly the US because that's what I'm, that's where my familiarity is the greatest. But you can't do that. Or historically, you have not been able to do that. And that history goes all the way, all the way back to the Great Depression. So before the Great Depression, you most certainly could do that. And people did. And there were a lot of scams and lots of kind of nonsense that would go on. And then, you know, in the roaring 20s, there were a lot of, you know, there were IPOs for companies that had no prospects at all. And then you had the bust in 29 and people were angry as people always are during the bust. And, you know, that anger sometimes gets directed properly and sometimes is misdirected. It really depends. I won't say I'm not, I'm not sufficiently adept as a historian. That's not my career. I won't say whether or not the anger was appropriately directed in that case or not, but what came out of the crash in 29 and the subsequent depression were three big pieces of legislation in the United States. The Securities Act of 33, the Exchange Act of 34, and the Investment Advisor Act of 40. Basically what the first two of those acts did was they said, no more of this general solicitation stuff, no more sandwich board. You cannot solicit generally. You must go through various different proper channels. So what, what ultimately is allowed and what ultimately is not allowed? So if you want to solicit capital for capital formation and you're a private individual, you have to go to what are known as accredited investors. And we can talk about the definition there, if you like. You can do that, right? And those are essentially people who have a certain amount of wealth or capital or a certain amount of income. They have to meet these thresholds for wealth or for income which is a much tighter pool. And the assumption there, for better or for worse, is that those people are more sophisticated or perhaps that it's, it will be less tumultuous if they lose some money. What the exact assumption is, I don't, I actually can't tell you, right? But it's somewhere in there. Now, is that assumption good or is it silly? It's probably a little bit goofy because there are plenty of people who have plenty of money and don't know what they're doing. And there are plenty of people who don't have that much money who are very smart and do know what they're doing. But you know, this is the way the world, this is the way the world is. And this is the way the regulations were set up. By the way, it's 90 years ago. The Securities Act of 33 was 90 years ago. So 
you know, that's a general solicitation. You can't do it anymore. And then, you know, after that, of course, if a company wants to go public, you could do an IPO, right? And that's a, that's a register with the SEC. But basically, there are these exemptions. You need to be following one of the exemptions. One of the exemptions is known as Reg D. And Reg D is what enables accredited investors to provide capital to a new entity, right? Then there's the IPO process. That's another exemption. And there are, you know, a small handful of others. And then there are the ones that have emerged more recently. But that's where you end up with what's called primary capital, right? So primary capital is I'm going to put new money into a venture and the company itself is going to get that money distinct, very distinct from trading in the traditional capital markets, buying and selling shares of stock through your brokerage. That's all secondary market, right? In other words, if I invest in Google, by buying shares of Google, I guess Alphabet, sorry, they don't get my money, right? I'm just buying from someone else on the other side of the trade. That's the secondary market, distinct from the primary market. Primary market is if you were one of the VCs who invested in Google, and I believe that Sequoia was one of them, I'd have to look. Sequoia provided primary market capital. They did so under Regulation D, right? Because Sequoia is for sure accredited. So last but not least, and I'll, I'll stop, an accredited investor could be a human being or it could be an entity, like a venture capital group. I do think you mentioned a really good point there because I think you're a common everyday person. Like you say, when they're buying Alphabet stock, that money isn't going to Alphabet. It's going to whoever sold those shares. Whereas when they go through that IPO process, that's when they go into that secondary market. And then when they issue those new shares, then that money you know, the bank sells the shares and it goes to the company, right? Yeah, that's right. And by the way, it's a common misconception, a misconception that I hear all the time when people talk about ESG. ESG has become thematically important, right? People are talking about it all the time. And you have a lot of people who talk about ESG and say, I don't want my money going to, for example, the petrochemical industry. But if they're buying and selling shares of ExxonMobil on the you know, stock exchange, Whatever one thinks about ESG, put that aside. I, I take no view on that, right? But what I think we need to avoid is the red herring that is, in this context, my money is going to the company. It's not going to the company unless it's capital formation, unless it's primary shares. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. When Rain Wilson had a great idea, he turned to AT&T Business. They assured him no matter how out there his idea may be, they had his back. So he came up with this, a talking pillow designed to put you to sleep, backed by a reliable network and the only network with built-in security controls. And thus, Sleep With Rain was a hit. Take your business to the next level at business.att.com. That's business.att.com. Kyle, you're connected with a ton of different investors and portfolio managers, and you're just really in the know on a lot of these things. How do you keep up with all the day-to-day -day headlines for your portfolio companies? Yeah, so I used to have a ton of issues with this, and that was until I started using Yahoo Finance. Really? What's so great about it? 
So Yahoo Finance is awesome. I have my whole portfolio entered and I can easily see all the top headlines to keep up with the recent news. And each day you get an overview of the major global events that might be moving the market. So I'm ready to easily pounce on any opportunities that come my way. What else can you do on Yahoo Finance's platform? They also have a number of cool features, including a tool that lets you link all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings, and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Well, now I know that the audience is really going to love this one. And I actually see they have 90 million monthly active users. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, back to the show. So how about we look a little bit more at the history of capital formation? Maybe you could discuss how some of these roles have changed over time, maybe in more recent years. So, you know, after the depression and you had the, you know, the, the acts of 33, 34 and 40, you had a far more restricted landscape in terms of how capital formation could occur. And by the way, the SEC's mission, I forget the exact mission statement, but in there are the words capital formation. So, you know, you couldn't, you could no longer stand in the middle of the street with a sandwich board and say, I want to take capital. Instead, you were, you know, if you were raising money for a new entity, you were approaching wealthy people. You were approaching other established entities that have money and saying, I want to put this new entity together. I want to put together a new company. And that was the process of capital formation. And that persisted for a very, very long time. Basically, that there were exceedingly limited number of ways that you could do capital formation. And this is all outside the public markets. This is all private markets. An exceedingly limited number of ways in which you could do that process. Now, what changed here more recently in 2012 was the Jobs Act. So the Jobs Act had a lot of stuff in it, but the thing that's relevant the piece of it that's relevant to capital formation was the establishment of two new regulations. One was called, is called Reg A plus, and the other is called Reg CF. What do they do? They allow for, within certain confines, a general solicitation targeting investors who are not accredited, and they enable capital formation from people who are not necessarily accredited investors. By the way, many investors turn out to be accredited and they don't realize they are, but that's another, we'll come back to that. But with the establishment of those new regulations, it was, you know, a change. You're changing the landscape, you know, 80 years of history change, right? You know, I don't want to say overnight because it took the SEC some time to, to actually, to actually put those regulations into action, right? So they, they were legislated in 2012, but then it, it took until 2015 and 2015 for regulation A+. Plus, and 2016 for Regulation CF for them to actually be put into force. The wheels of government do not move quickly. Once they were put into force, the rules were different. So under Regulation A+, a company can solicit from the general public. They have to file this sort of kind of mini prospectus, right? It's not quite the same as what you file in a traditional IPO, but it contains a lot of the same information. Once the company has filed that, the company can go out and raise up to $75 million from anybody, from anybody. That number, that 75 number used to be smaller, but it got, it was, it was increased. Reg CF is a slightly lighter weight regulation. So instead of having to put together this mini prospectus, 
need to put together an even more miniature one. It's like, it's less onerous and the subsequent recording requirements are less onerous. And that lets you raise up to $5 million, again, from the general public. That's an increase from the original approximately 1 million. So started as you could raise up to a million bucks. Now you can raise up to 5 million bucks. And people are using it. Companies are using it with some fairly successfully, some a lot less successfully, but it's definitely in use. And it's a huge change because now your uncle can say, I want to open that car wash. And he might not need 75 million bucks for it, but maybe he needs 2 million bucks for it. And he can go out on the street with a sandwich board and say, I want to raise some money. Now he can't actually take the money and put it in his, put it in his pockets. He needs to use an intermediary. The intermediary charges fees. And there's a whole racket there. There's always a racket with these things. But the fact that he can do it, the fact that he can go into his own community and say, hey, I want to raise money for this car wash is really important. And here's why. Well, there are many reasons why, but I want to focus on one. Outsiders, you know, wealthy individuals who don't live near your uncle, they may not understand the need for that car wash in that community. They may say, is there really demand for this? Do people really care? But if you live in that community, people who live in that community with your uncle, they will have a sense, perhaps, as to whether or not there's demand for that car wash. And maybe, the, you know, one of them will say to himself, you know what? There's tons of demand for this. I really want a car wash here, right? Not just because I want to be able to wash my car, but also because I think it will generate good returns. There are no other car washes in a 50-mile radius, and there are tons of cars here. And I happen to know that because I'm in the community. Well, great. Now your uncle connects directly with this, you know, this individual and the individual can put in 500 bucks, a hundred bucks. It's not going to necessarily be the fastest process if everyone's putting in a hundred bucks, but the ability to get involved in the capital formation process, when you have an insight as to the value proposition of that business where others might not, that's what's so important here. That's what's so important here. That's a big change. You mentioned these Reg A plus and Reg CF that was you know first proposed in 2012. Why do you think this came about? Is it something with the internet, you know, making information so much more available and you know much more accessible, or why do you think all of a sudden now non-accredited investors can invest in companies like this? For a very long time, there have been complaints about the inability to conduct a general solicitation. I can't tell you the exact catalyst that led to the legislation in 2012. But what I can tell you is that the desire for a freer form of capital formation has existed for a very long time. At the time, 80 years of you know, pent-up demand, now it's 90 years later, at the time it was 80 years, right? 80 years of pent-up demand for people to have easier access to capital formation. And I would say that Reg A plus and Reg CF have certainly not fully solved the problem. They've solved it a little bit, but you can tell that there continues to be significant demand for capital formation through mechanisms outside of Reg D, outside of the venture world, based on a lot of things that you see around you. So if you look back to, for example, 2017-18, there was a whole ICO craze. What is that? That's a form of capital formation. Now, does it violate regulations? So many regulators would say yes, right? But people were saying, hey, this is a way to, to conduct capital formation. There were tons of scams. There was tons of bad stuff going on. There was good stuff too. 
but people were doing it outside of the framework of Reg A and Reg CF. Some people actually tried to embrace Reg A and kind of meld the two together. I don't know how well that went. I think some of those went okay, but the point is it occurred in this sort of big rush and people were like, you know, well, here's a great way to, here's a great way to raise money. And it worked. And you continue to see situations in which individuals and companies will have interesting ideas and they have trouble forming capital to create a new entity, right? To create a new venture to, to, to affect those ideas. I think Reg A and Reg CF are a great starting point. Clearly more needs to be done. It's still too onerous overall. And if you look at, for example, just some of the fees that exist if you're involved in Reg CF, those fees can hit, you know, 10-ish percent, which is a gargantuan amount of money. Imagine you're raising uh, $5 million, half a million dollars going to intermediaries, it's a lot of money. You know, I would say that the reform process remains incomplete here. And you see a lot of areas in which there is innovation based upon these reforms, right? Based upon those new regulations. So for example, if you see a real estate venture, a real estate opportunity advertised to you on social media or fractional ownership in a car or a collectible or fractional ownership in artwork, all of these things are being done via Reg A and Reg CF. So you've had a lot of innovation as a consequence of these regulations emerging. You couldn't have done that. Forget the social media part. You couldn't have done that before the Jobs Act. Now you can. And you know it goes to show that innovation will persist and you end up the caps on that are often, not always, but are often a regulatory framework. And if you loosen those caps, you'll probably see more innovation emerge. I think this brings to question things like equity crowdfunding and maybe some of the other crowdfunding opportunities you might see on something like Kickstarter. How about you talk about equity crowdfunding, what it is, and how this sort of fits into the picture as well? So Reg A plus and Reg CF are the equity crowdfunding regulations. And I think it's really important to talk about equity crowdfunding versus traditional crowdfunding. You look at the type of crowdfunding you get on the likes of Kickstarter, you're not getting any equity ownership in the entity that's raising capital. What you're doing is you're effectively providing that company with working capital or potentially some R&D money to develop a new product, then you're kind of pre-buying the product. You don't own the company. That's, by the way, that does not, as far as I know, does not run afoul of the general solicitation rules because you don't, you're not getting any securities, right? You're just pre-buying a product. Equity crowdfunding is different. You're doing the same thing in terms of asking the crowd for money, but the crowd in return for its capital gets an ownership interest in the company conducting the offering. So equity crowdfunding is very, very different from old school crowdfunding. So for the traditional crowdfunding, you said they're providing capital for, you know, for the working capital needs of the company. So what are they actually purchasing then if they're not getting equity? In regular crowdfunding, you're generally getting access to a product, perhaps before it's released to the general public. That's generally what you're getting. <laughs> Versus in equity crowdfunding, you are getting other shares of stock or some other security interest in the target company. So with the regular crowdfunding, you're getting a one-time thing. You're getting the widget that they make. With equity crowdfunding, you get shares of stock of the company, which you could own into perpetuity. And to the extent that, you know, ultimately those shares pay a dividend or ultimately there's an acquisition, 
you have the opportunity to, to make money, not just receive a product. Now, when I look at your background and your experience, you know, working at a hedge fund, you have a finance background, you started your own Bitcoin company in the 2010s. How do you see equity crowdfunding playing a part in an individual's portfolio then? I think this is an interesting topic. There are, at this point, an abundance of equity crowdfunding opportunities. You can go on websites like uh, WeFunder or Republic or StartEngine. There are a bunch of these things out there. And you can see these companies that are raising capital. Now, question, should you put capital into one of these companies? I'm not here to answer that. What I can talk to you about is, so I think this is your question, some of the frameworks for analysis here. So certainly, you know, one approach is to take a portfolio approach and say, okay, I don't know which ones to pick, but I'm going to pick A and B and C and D and E and F and 10 of them, right? And put, you know, an equal amount of capital in each, sort of hedge your risk that way. Second way to do it is if you have some specific familiarity, this goes back to the car wash example. If you lived, you know, in the town where your uncle is raising money for the car wash and you know that there is a need for a car wash there and you think that there will be demand and you think that that car wash will make money, then you have some information on which you can make potentially a reasonable decision, right? And you know, an outsider wouldn't know one way or the other necessarily, right? So maybe you have information as a community insider that would enable you to put capital into an entity because you, you have a sense for upcoming demand. And that doesn't have to be a call law, right? Maybe you're a physician and what's being proposed is a medical device and you understand that area particularly well. Or maybe you're not a physician. Maybe you're, maybe you're just a, like a, a biologist, right? Who knows? But you understand some particular area. That can be interesting. Those are interesting opportunities. So that's the second way. So first way, portfolio. Second way is you have some, some sense for what's going on with that particular industry. Third way is you can certainly follow along with others. There are you know, newsletters and all sorts of kind of publications that will talk about these things and compare them. And I think that's a good way to do it. There are websites that will also where you can kind of compare and contrast, you know, conceptually similar to a screening tool for stocks. Right where you know you could screen based on earnings growth or revenue, some particular. So there are a bunch of ways for a person to get informed about this stuff. Certainly, do your homework. What's nice here is the fact that these opportunities are no longer limited to venture capitalists. It's not that VCs can't invest in these things, and often they do. By the way, some of these some of these opportunities are led by venture capitalists, and they're taking money from the crowd anyway. Right, because they want a community building exercise, right? They have a product and they want their users to get even more excited about the product. So they're taking money and hoping that the users get more excited than they already are. So there's that as well. So it's not limiting to the venture capitalists, but it, what it does is it enables investors who happen not to be accredited to participate in these sorts of days. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, this is Clay Fink. Before I became a host on We Study Billionaires, I hosted one of our other podcasts called Millennial Investing. Kyle Grieve and Patrick Donnelly have done an incredible job now hosting that show and taking it to the next level. For example, Kyle recently hosted an amazing episode with Chris Mayer on episode 310 that gave a masterclass on serial acquirers. Serial acquirers are a very interesting business model with very strong multi-bagger potential. This makes them potentially the dream business for stock pickers like us. 
Kyle also hosted some other amazing episodes packed full of timeless investing wisdom with guests like Lawrence Cunningham, Robert Hagstrom, and Brian Feraldi. Millennial Investing, along with We Study Billionaires, is definitely one you should add to your arsenal of top podcasts. Check it out today by searching for Millennial Investing on your favorite podcast app and clicking the follow button. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? For me, nothing beats having my next flight free thanks to NerdWallet. Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Earlier, you mentioned the venture space being around a $750 billion market, I believe. So how does the crowdfunding piece kind of play into this? I'm curious if it's sort of disrupted venture capital in a way, you know, now that you know, there's more access for investors or how big is this crowdfunding piece of the puzzle? I have to get back to you with the exact numbers. There is data out there. It's not even close to the 750B. It's not even close to disrupting venture. It was one of the reasons why I think it's so interesting. We're at the earliest stages. It's not even close. And there are many reasons why it's not even close. You still have a lot of hot deals that know they can go straight to VCs and get the money, you know, you get it done fairly quickly. Whereas the equity crowdfunding route is sometimes viewed as more of a long, you know, more of a slot, a longer process. It depends. It isn't always. You know, when we did it, we, you know, filled around very, very quickly. But I think there's certainly a perception that it can take a long time. And I think in many instances it does. So it has not yet disrupted the venture capital world. And I don't know when it will. It may never disrupt it per se. It may exist alongside it. I would be surprised if equity crowdfunding were to destroy venture capital. I do not expect that. What could be interesting is the coexistence of the two and the continued growth of equity crowdfunding and the ability for people who are not venture capitalists to get involved in opportunities where they otherwise would not have the chance. 
And I think that coexistence can actually be not just healthy, but beyond that, I would say symbiotic. And a, a good example of that is a situation in which there's a consumer facing product and the users are excited about the product and they want to put in capital. Right? And that can sit right alongside the VCs. Now, this whole topic really hits close to home for you because your team at Atacama is actually doing an equity crowdfunding around yourselves, which is quite unique for all the reasons we've discussed here. How about you talk more specifically about Atacama, your company, and the equity crowdfunding opportunity that your team has? So Atacama is a cybersecurity company based in New York City. And we started an equity crowdfunding round late last year under Reg CF and also Reg D. So we did these two things simultaneously. And then also another Reg called Reg S, which I can explain in a moment as well. The Reg CF portion filled very quickly. So between Reg CF and then Silver Credit is we hit the $5 million in like five days. I said earlier that many companies find this to be a slog. We found it to be a very efficient and effective way of raising capital. We're thrilled we did it. We think it was great. And, you know, now I give these investor updates and it's great. You know, I'll give, I'll do a, a webinar and I'll have all these folks who are investors in the company and I'll be able to tell them directly what the, you know, what's going on, which I enjoy. And I hope they enjoy it too. I think they do. We've continued along with the equity crowdfunding route here. So right now we, we have, for the time being, exhausted our $5 million cap. It's $5 million every 12 months. So now, right now, we're, we're still raising under what's known as Reg D. So we can take money from accredited investors but also under what's known as Reg S. Reg S enables us to raise capital from anyone overseas, accredited or not accredited. So overseas relative to the United States. So anyone, SEC says under Reg S, you can raise capital from folks who are outside of the United States, regardless of their accreditation status. We look forward in the future to, if, if at all possible, we'll see, reopening the Reg CM piece and being able to deal with even more investors in the United States who are not accredited. I think that's great. But for now, it's accredited US and not accredited slash accredited overseas. I'd love for you to jump in on the product side as well, because I find that aspect just so interesting because you're able to recognize this opportunity in the cybersecurity space and move along and you know work for a hedge fund, work in tech, and then start a Bitcoin company and kind of understand the technology and the cybersecurity aspects. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the product side of Atacama. Absolutely. And I'll give you the 20 second Genesis story, which will explain how we got the product piece. So when I spent some time in the Bitcoin world, one of the most interesting aspects of that space, in my mind, had been various different mechanisms of storing cryptographic keys. So without getting too mired in the underlying details, cryptographic key is what enables you to send Bitcoin crypto from party A to party B. You have that key, you can send it to another person. You better keep that key very well protected. And one of the really neat ways to do that is to split the key into pieces. And the, the I would say, most well-known mechanism for doing that cryptographically, assuming there is Shamir's secret sharing scheme. So... Using so Shamir's secret sharing scheme is what's known as an example of threshold cryptography. It's a it's a mechanism of splitting a piece of data, be it a cryptographic key or otherwise, into multiple components. We saw this within the Bitcoin and crypto world, and we said, "Wait a second, this is great security. Why isn't anybody doing this for enterprise cybersecurity?" 
I really was shocked at how little of this sort of thing was actually going on in the enterprise cybersecurity world. So of course we said, this is great. This is a great opportunity. Everyone was running towards you know, the white hot Bitcoin and crypto world. And we said, wait a second, wait a second. There's something great here tech-wise. And we can take that and apply it someplace else. And people are not running into that area. Like they're not all trying to do that same thing. So we built out an encryption platform that enables the splitting of keys and the reassembly of those keys at the point of decryption. So you'll have a piece on your laptop, a piece on your phone, a piece on your iPad, you know, a piece could be on a server. And then when you want to decrypt that piece of data, you can on the fly, let the shards of the key be reassembled and, you know, sort of tap approves. It's got sort of a UI, UX, user interface, user experience of what looks like 2FA. You just tap a button on your phone and then boom, your cryptographic key is reassembled. The file is decrypted and you're ready, you're ready to rock and roll. Meanwhile, if somebody manages to get access to the underlying encrypted data, all they have is a bunch of encrypted nonsense. They need to have the keys. So in order to steal your data, it's no longer just breaking into your Google Drive, breaking into the file server, breaking into Dropbox, whatever it is. Yes, they have to do that, but they also have to get the piece of the key that's on your phone, the piece of the key that's on the server, the piece of the key that's on a laptop. It's much, much harder. So you, you know, you've increased the difficulty of accessing data here in a gargantuan manner, right? So if, if stealing one piece of the key is difficulty X, stealing two pieces is not 2X. It's like X to the some power, right? It's, it's very difficult to calculate, but it's much, much more difficult. So you end up with incredibly powerful protection against what's known as data exfiltration. Exfiltration meaning the theft and right, potential exposure of that data, right, uh, elsewhere. And it's been great. And, you know, we have more than 60 enterprise customers. 60 would be very, you know, 60 doesn't necessarily sound impressive if you're talking about, you know, mom and, you know, mom and poppy. We're talking about, you know, big companies, right? So you're getting big companies to buy this stuff with success and they like it and they're buying more of it. <laughs> you know, if you look at just, you know, Q1 is not quite over as we're recording this. It's approaching over. By the end of Q1, we will probably have grown you know, revenue on a year over year basis, annual recurring revenue. So the amount of like new customers that we get in where we're recurring revenue by somewhere between 30 and 40%. So we love it. We're thrilled. And it's super cool technology. It serves a really important purpose. Customers love it. And uh, we're thrilled to be doing it. Since we're talking about Atacama, I just wanted to give a full disclosure that I have personally invested in your team's crowdfunding round just a few months ago, actually. And that was after researching and getting to know yourself and getting to know the great people on your team, just to make the audience fully aware. And regarding the cybersecurity space in particular, one of the things that amazed me with Atacama and the industry is just how massive it is. McKinsey released a study that showed that in 2021, organizations spend around $150 billion on cybersecurity. And they estimate that this is really just beginning and that there's only 10% penetration into this total opportunity for cybersecurity. And the current growth rate I saw in that McKinsey study in spend was around 12.4% in 2021. So you mentioned the growth in Atacama and your business. You're growing very rapidly and adding new customers. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the valuation and how that works with the crowdfunding ground, and then maybe what sort of opportunity you see in the future for your company. 
I think the, the study that you referenced captures it quite well. The need for cybersecurity is only increasing. And, you know, it's increasing for a lot of different reasons. It's increasing because, you know, the complexity of the internet is only increasing. The places in which we keep our data, you know, that number of places, that's only increasing. The opportunities for attackers, that opportunity space, unfortunately, is increasing. And, you know, cybercrime is the new way of conducting criminal activity where you can hide behind something. Physical crime, it just certainly still happens today, right? You know, but there are cameras everywhere. Sure. I don't think, I don't think it's as appealing to be a mugger on the street when you might get picked up by a camera as it is to be, you know, an attacker behind a keyboard. Or of course, there are ways you can be caught, of course, but it's much easier to cover your tracks. Besides your webcam, which you've probably put a piece of tape over if you're an attacker, there's no camera to watch you do it. So lots of attacks going on. And, you know, businesses are the primary targets of these attacks because they have, you know, the opportunities to, to steal money or steal data or ex unfortunately extort businesses. And then, of course, the underlying data is like your data and my data <laughs> to data about us. So the attackers know that. The attackers know that they can really do a lot of damage and they, they take advantage of that. In terms of valuation, so you know, our current equity crowdfunding round is at a $29, $29 million valuation. How did we come up with that? We wanted something that wasn't too high, wasn't too low. You'll see in the equity crowdfunding space that there are all sorts of ranges of valuations. And I would, by the way, you know, listener beware, right? You will see valuations that are egregious and, you know, just be aware of the fact that when you see a $1 billion valuation on a company that doesn't have any revenue, think carefully about what you want to do there. The thing about equity crowdfunding is you sort of get to pick your own valuation and then people either invest or don't invest. So we wanted to pick something that was reasonable, right? You know, that's based on, you know, the fact that, you know, we have total contract value of about $2.3 million right now. So we felt like it was a reasonable number. And then if you look north towards some of the big exits, there are plenty of cybersecurity companies where you know, the exits have been well north of a B, right? So obviously, and some that have been well north of 10B. We would love to be able to provide our investors with these 30X, 300X, like these, you know, these gargantuan returns. And, you know, our job right now is to continue to you know, bust our behinds to make that happen. My team, you know, credit to my team. I think my team is terrific. They're doing an incredible job pushing us forward. But we wanted to pick a reasonable valuation where investors can participate. The founding team doesn't get excessively diluted, but investors can participate and still make a really great return. And I think we've done that. Now, you really understand this equity crowdfunding venture capital. Why did Atacama decide to go the equity crowdfunding route and not some of these other routes that are available to you? Biggest reason is that I have a personal proclivity towards enabling everybody to invest. I don't think it should just be in the hands of venture capitalists. I'm not saying that they should be excluded. I'm not saying you should prohibit them from participating. They have their place. But there's no reason why that guy and that woman and that person over there and that person over there shouldn't be able to participate as well. Let them read about the company, right? You know, get to know us, do their homework a little bit and you know, if they want to participate, there shouldn't be any barriers to that. 
So, you know, once I, I think once I discovered the equity crowdfunding space and I realized what's possible, you know, the fact that anyone can invest and there's no longer these goofy restrictions just because you, you, you know, you don't, you don't have some threshold amount of income or some threshold amount of assets. I think once I discovered that, I should discover that it's quite liberating. I really love the idea and it's worked out nicely for us. I'm also curious, you mentioned some of these cybersecurity companies have had very successful exits. So someone invests today, if they decide to invest today, their money gets locked up, they own equity in Atacama. And then what does the exit process look like? And maybe what sort of timeline or general timeline investors can expect for when they can or when they do exit? Exits can come in a variety of different forms. You know, exit can be an acquisition by another cybersecurity company or another company in general. Oftentimes, cybersecurity companies will acquire other cybersecurity companies. An exit can be in the form of an IPO. An exit can be in the form of an acquisition not by a cybersecurity company or other company, but rather by a financial sponsor, you know, by private entity. So those are three examples. And of course, you know, we are not opposed to any of those three. You know, all three of those would be interesting ways, good ways of affecting an exit. Right now, the way we're thinking about it is build the most powerful business we can build, grow revenue as powerfully as we can, create a bunch of really happy customers who want to continue to spend, grow the product line. We do those things and we do them well. And I'm confident that an appropriate exit will appear. So I think it's, I think it's important to mention the ways in which exits can occur. But I think simultaneously, it's important to mention that the team at Atacama is focused on building the business. And we have confidence that building a good business will ultimately result in a good exit in one of those forms or some other form. Well, Daniel, I really, really appreciate you coming on the show. I know I learned so much from this one hour, you know, capital formation, venture capital, equity crowdfunding, and Autocomma. There's just so much in this episode, and I got so much value from it. And I know that the audience will as well. So if anyone's interested in investing in Autocomma like I have or learn more about your company, how can they get in touch with you and invest and check it out? Yeah. So first of all, Clay, we're thrilled to have you as an investor. And for folks who are interested in investing, you can go to invest.atacama.com slash WSB. And Atacama is spelled A-T-A-K-A-M-A. We're named after the Atacama Desert in Chile, which is spelled with a C, but we spell our name with a K. And at invest.atacama.com slash WSB, you'll find tons of information about the company. You'll find information about milestones that we've hit, our success to date. You'll find our investor presentation, uh, the ability to talk to investor relations, and a whole lot more. And we'd love to have you as investors. Awesome. Well, Daniel, we'll be sure to get that linked in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Thank you again for coming on the We Study Billionaires podcast and providing so much value to our audience. We really do appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.